So if you have your Bibles, let's get into the text. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We will be in verses 17 to 20. And before we get into the text, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for this opportunity to open your word. God, we do not take it lightly. We know that you have spoken. Father, we pray that you would give us high, that Christ would be magnified, that your people would be built up, may you go to work in us. Father, we pray that those who do not know Jesus, God, that you would draw them to Christ by your spirit, that today would be a day of salvation. Father, help me to preach your word clearly, with confidence, not in myself, but in Christ. May I decrease begging for you to increase for the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John G. Patton, who was a 19th century Scottish missionary who took the gospel to New Hebrides, Hebrides, It was an unreached people group. He went among them, learned the language, loved them, served them, and faithfully preached the gospel to them. He was there for a couple of decades. By God's grace, he saw some people repent and believe. His ministry was also one where he experienced a ton of great loss. Upon arrival, his wife and newly born daughter died John saw a number of missionaries, fellow companions, and partners in the gospel be martyred for their faith in Christ, and he himself experienced much persecution by the people in that land. They continued to tell him that they hated Jesus. They continued to try to seek to kill him on account of Jesus because he preached the gospel. In fact, the persecution was so intense that he himself had to leave the country. Well, as he left, he prayed for this people. He longed to come back. And in fact, years later, he returned. He took another group of missionaries. They went to a learned the language, and preached the gospel there. By God's grace, the gospel took root And so many people turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. They renounced their idolatry, professing that Christ is Lord and lived for him alone. They continued to express their appreciation for for Pat, and he continued to make known to him that he loved them. And he continued to be for their good as he faithfully preached the word to them. Beloved, this is what it looks like to have good ministry, to do good ministry, where it is motivated by love, first and foremost for the Lord Jesus Christ, and love for the people who are made in his image. And good ministry is also marked by faithfulness, not gimmicks or gadgets, not manipulation, faithfulness to the calling that God has had on his people and obeying the commands that he has given. In our day and age, many people are wondering, what does good ministry look like? And sadly, there are a number of answers that can get out there. Say, 
that good ministry, I would give two marks. Say, good ministry, there are certainly more, at least two. It is motivated by love, and it is marked by faithfulness. And we will see this in this morning's text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. You may be seated. So our big idea for this passage, tree, motivated by love and marked by faithfulness. Do ministry motivated by love and marked by faithfulness. We have two scenes that we will see from this passage. First, we will see a longing from love, and then we will see a joy from faithfulness. A longing from love and a joy from faithfulness. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, at the very beginning of this chapter, Paul, he defended his ministry and his motives as he brought the gospel to the people of Thessalonica. He loved them dearly, so much so that he would say that we were like a nursing mother. We loved you to the point where we preached the gospel and gave you our lives. We were like fathers exhorting you, and you were like our children in the Lord. Later on in chapter 2, he expressed gratitude to God for the Thessalonians embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ and enduring persecution on account of Christ. Well, in this morning, this passage, we will see his affections for the church amidst his absence. Which brings us to the first scene, our first point where we see a longing from love. Paul may have possibly been accused of indifference towards this congregation since he left immediately. Assume that Paul had apathy towards them. Well, here Paul, he begins to reaffirm his affections for this people and that he longed to be with them. Look at verse 17. He says, but as for us, brothers and sisters, in person, not in heart, We greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. Persecution has arisen. It's the reason why Paul left. It arose on account of the gospel to where Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were forced out. Paul had intended to be there much longer than three to six months, but the time was cut short. Hostility had arisen on account of the gospel. The Jews were jealous of Paul's ministry, and they hated his message that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messianic king, the promised one whom the Old Testament spoke of, and that he had made atonement for sin by dying on the cross. The king who they have awaited actually died as a sacrifice and resurrected from the grave. 
and that they, both Jew and Gentile, were to repent and trust in Jesus. This message brought about great hostility, a message of forgiveness and salvation and redemption led to anger. Paul knew, as we know, as we preach this message, it don't always result in having new friends. Sometimes it results in having new foes. And so they formed a mob, had a riot going on in Thessalonica, persecution arose on account of the gospel, and Paul and Silas, they had to flee the city. Similar to Afghan Christians, almost over a year ago, having to flee Afghanistan because the Taliban regime has overtaken the country, fleeing for their very own lives because they preach Christ. Well, this congregation, they came to Paul and Silas and sent them away. Like in the movie Get Out, where Rod was adamantly telling his best friend Chris, you got to get out. This is what the congregation was saying to Paul and Silas and Timothy. The separation was sudden, and it wasn't pleasant, but painful. Paul says that we were forced to leave you. Now, that Greek word here, the verb, it gets at the word being orphaned from this congregation. Now, one commentary made known that back then, it was not only common for orphans to be described as children who have lost their parents, but also parents who were bereft of their children. Paul is saying that he was torn from his spiritual children in the Lord, missing them dearly, and it grieved him greatly. And the reason why it grieved him is because they were family. Obviously not ethnic family because he's a Jew and they're Gentiles. But they are family in the Lord as Christ has united us. The church is a family, and you even see it in the passage. He refers to them as brothers and sisters. Beloved, the church, the new covenant community is a family where God has adopted us in Christ Jesus to be his children. Christ has saved us through his death and resurrection and has united us together to where we are truly brothers and sisters in the Lord. The gospel produces a deep and sincere affection for one another as the heart of stone has been removed and a heart of flesh has, been, has replaced it. And we obey the Lord Jesus' command to love one another, fellow covenant community members, just as Christ has loved us. Paul loved this congregation dearly. He was experiencing great grief from being separated. And that grief is evidence that he loved them. You see, for Paul, the Thessalonians, they weren't mere stats on a roll. They weren't dearly and loved them deeply. This deep love is the fruit of an intentional investment in their life. As he brought the gospel, as he lived among them and showed them what it looks like to apply the gospel to everyday life. That when you are committed to fellow church members and you labor for, the mat for their maturation in Christ Jesus, it results in deep affection for them. 
The more time you spend with fellow members, the more you open your heart, the more you begin to talk about the Lord Jesus and get beyond the surface. What God begins to do there is knit your heart together to where when you leave from them, you are saddened by that reality. You see, beloved, as we love one another deeply, it will grieve us to be apart from each other because we are family. And family loves to be together. There's no doubt that over time, the Lord may lead a number of our members to leave this congregation for a variety of reasons. But the question to consider is that if you were to leave, how would it affect you? Would you be saddened? Would you be indifferent? Would you be excited? One's reaction actually reveals one's affections. And it possibly reveals the level of investment that you've made in the life of the church. You know, a few years ago, when we lived in Alexandria, there was a couple, John and Lee Fuller. And so they were going to be in Alexandria, Virginia, for about three to four years. And y'all, in that three to four years, they invested deeply in the life of the church. I mean, they opened their home. They were studying scripture. They were reading good books with other members. To where when the time was about to come, John even tried to get an extension to remain in Alexandria so that they can remain at Delray. Unfortunately, the extension was denied. And so they were preparing to leave, and they had this go-away party. And, y'all, let me tell you, there were so many members who were present at this going-away party, encouraging them, letting them testifying the evidence of God's grace in their life, making known to them how the Lord used John and Lee Fuller in, the light, in their own lives. And what blew my wife and I away by this going-away party is there were even members who most recently moved to the area and joined the church. As they were making their way out, they were still investing in this congregation because they loved the people dearly. Had to watch them leave as they walked with others and made known their burdens and people walked with this congregation, the congregation at Delray. No, but they was getting, I imagine that they probably felt a little bit of how Paul felt with the Thessalonians. Of one, the level of one's love for the church is likely contingent upon the level of one's investment in the church. Let me say that again. I messed it all up. <laughs> the level of one's love for the church is likely contingent upon the level of one's investment within the church. You see, where there are prayers for the body, an intentional pursuit of the body, getting up in fellowship within the body, there will be deep sadness to leave the body because you've pointed people to Christ and we're pointed to the Christ by them. The question for you, beloved, is what is your level of investment in the life at Midtown Baptist? Are you intentionally getting up with members and aiming to build them up in Christ, striving to seek the truth, speak the truth in love for each other's growth, and longing for one another will only deepen. Look at verse 17 again. 
Paul says, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face. But the distance didn't affect Paul's affections. He passionately yearned to return and be with this congregation. So much so that he diligently plotted and attempted to return on numerous occasions. He wanted to be with them to encourage them in the Lord, to strengthen their faith in Christ. Beloved, we read of these intense affections, and some of us can relate as we think about, you know, in different areas we can relate. As we think about we just came back from a really sweet vacation. Oftentimes we have vacation blues if it was a marvelous time to the point to where we want to go back and be there. Some of us have these intense affections when one of our friends leave for the entire summer. We are longing to be back with them. Oh, and we've spent a, a week away from our dog. Y'all laughing, but you know it's true. <laughs> Some of y'all be longing to be back with your dog. Which ain't a bad thing in and of itself. It shows love. But the question when you're away do you long to be back with the body, to encourage them in the Lord, to be in their presence, to build them up in Christ? Is there an eagerness to gather with the saints on the Lord's day? Because there's a love. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, And let us consider, not ourselves, but let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Is there an eager desire to come to the gathering, not just so you can hear the songs and stuff like that, but because you want to see the body and you want to worship together as a people? Beloved, this cross-reference and this passage in so many, so many verses in the Bible, it screams to the reality that we were created to have in-person, loving relationships with others. It is one of the ways by which we image God. You see, the God who created us, he is one God in essence and nature in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person is fully God. Our very own God, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, he exists within a community within himself. To where we love and be loved. We know and be known. That we not merely have this online community, but in-person relationships and a covenant community. It's part of what it means to be a part of the church as Christ has united us. We are his body. We are to be living with one another and doing life together. The reality is in this social media age, this type of deep relationships and deep affection is harder and harder to foster. What's strange is that we are more connected now than ever, than any other generation, and yet we are more lonely than other generations. Screen to screen interactions have replaced in-person encouragement. We would rather post our best instead of share and bear our burdens with other members in person. Beloved, that is not how we're going to flourish as a gospel community. 
If we're actually going to flourish as a community, then we need to be in each other's lives, in each other's presence. Gathering together, hearing the gospel, and applying the gospel to our lives. This type of work takes effort. It takes intentionality. That as we do so, our affections for one another will grow. Beloved, as we prioritize the corporate gathering, in-person fellowship, those things actually reveal love. Because we're laboring for each other's growth in Christ Jesus. It also reveals God's sanctifying work in our lives because these things don't come natural. What's natural is for us to only think about ourselves. What's natural is for us to only do us, to only do what's convenient and comfortable. But what's Christ-like is to look not to our own interest, but to the interest of the other. What's Christ-like is to gather with people to encourage them in the Lord. Beloved, where these things are present reveals that God is actively at work. And where these things, the corporate gathering and fellowship is not prioritized, it reveals areas where the gospel needs to be applied and we need to repent. Because these are not suggestions that the Lord has given, but commands that he has given in love for his glory and for our good and flourishing. Look at verse 18. So we wanted to come to you. The Apostle Paul, he personalized this part, making known that he persistently attempted to return to be with the Thessalonians. And yet every plan was thwarted. And why? He says, Satan hindered us. Now, we don't know how. We can give a number of speculations. But we do know that Satan prevented Paul's return to the Thessalonians. Paul saw it for what it actually was, gospel opposition, where Paul is actively at work to return to the Thessalonians to encourage their faith. Satan was actively at work trying to keep that from happening to destroy their faith. Scripture likens Satan to a roaring lion who is on the prowl seeking whom he may devour. Beloved, Satan has real authority, and he opposes God's people. He opposes Christian work. His authority is real, but it is not supreme. God has supreme authority. His authority is decisive. Satan opposes God's workers. Satan opposes the gospel. He wants to snuff out faith and destroy the church. He does this through persecution. Think about the church in, what is it, the church that's in Seattle. This past work of Satan as they are opposing gospel work. Satan also does this opposition to the spread of godless ideology, trying to keep people from believing the true gospel. He does this work in seeking to silence the church. Beloved, the question for us is, do we see gospel opposition for what it actually is? a work of Satan and demonic. Paul here, he's reaffirming his love for the congregation and placing great emphasis on his desire to be with the people. He wants to minister to them up close. 
He wants to come to them, not to get something from them, but to give something to them. In chapter 3, verse 10, he actually makes known why he wanted to come. To complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul is concerned about concern for their souls, desiring to see them grow more and more in Christ. Beloved, he didn't want to minister from afar, but up close. Because that's what good ministry does. Good ministry ain't taking place from afar. It's desiring to be up close with the people because you love them. You want to live among and do life with the people you minister to. We are called to speak the truth in love, and we are to always do that, but our preference is to be that we do it in person, not from afar. We want to labor towards growth in the gospel. Because Christ has saved us. Because this is evidence of grace. Because we want to build them up. There's a longing to be with the people because we love them. So first we've seen the scene of a longing motivated by love. And now let's see a joy from faithfulness. Paul begins to think eschatologically. That big word means he's starting to think about the end times. And he begins to explain his reason for his deep longing for them. And he does it by way of two questions that he poses. Look at verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul posed some questions. And after reading verse 19, some of y'all may have some questions for Paul. Like, what do you mean that this congregation is Paul's hope? What do you mean that they're his joy? What do you mean that they're his crown of boasting? What he's saying here seems to be contradicting things that he said in other places in his letters. Some of you may be wondering, preacher, what is going on in the lab? And then I'm going to bring it to our level. First, it's important for us to know that Paul is not communicating any form of works righteousness. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is his message, and he also believed that message. It's also important to know that Paul doesn't have some sort of misplaced hope. Think about chapter 1, verse 3. Paul commended this church for their hope in the Lord Jesus. He, too, has hoped in the Lord, and he, too, is awaiting the return of the Lord. You see it even in this verse. So it doesn't have some sort of misplaced hope. His hope hasn't shifted. And his boast, it is in the Lord and the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to know these things as we get into what Paul is mindful of the final day where Christ will leave his heavenly throne, where he reigns as king, he will return to the earth, he will consummate his kingdom, he will judge his enemies, and he will save his people and evaluate them. You see, this takes place because Christ, the Son of God, became man through the incarnation. 
as he walked among the earth, the very earth that he created, lived perfectly, brought the kingdom that he is the king of, as he died for sin and resurrected from the grave, as he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he currently reigns, he promised that he will return. It is the great day that Christians await. It is the day that the Apostle Paul awaits. And we see it in this verse. Now, upon that return, it will be a day of great dread and a day of great delight. It will be a day of great dread where unbelievers who rejected the gospel, the very one who could have been their savior being Jesus, will now be their judge on them. Friends, with that being said, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad that you are here. Friends, if you don't get anything else from this sermon, please get this, that Jesus Christ is real, that he is the Son of God, that he is the only Savior, that he died for sin and resurrected from the grave, that the very purpose of him leaving heaven and coming to earth is to save sinners like you and like me. All who would trust in him. Friends, get this. Believe in Jesus and be saved. His return is more certain than our next breath. And we will have to stand before him. And the only way that it won't be a day of dread for you is by finding your hope in Christ. I would implore you this day to believe in Jesus. Friends, if you'd like, you can talk with any of the members after service. We would love to talk with you about following Christ. You see, this day that Christ returns, it will be a day of great dread, but it will also be a day of great delight. You see, those who have trusted in Jesus, we've been spared from the judgment that we deserve. As Christ bore it in our place. As we hold fast to the gospel to the very end, we will be delivered from the judgment. Which is why it is, and it is a day of delight, and one of the things we have to be mindful of is that we will still give an account. This is what Paul is getting at. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For we must all appear. And Paul is talking to Christians, and he's including himself. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What's happening in verse 19 is that Paul is mindful of that day. He's mindful of the reality that he will have to give an account. And he is saying that the Thessalonians, they are the fruit that God has produced in his apostolic ministry. Paul was faithful to his calling as an apostle out of a love for Jesus. He had no gimmicks, no games, no manipulation. We know he didn't water down the gospel, so much so that he was ran out of the town. He preached faithfully, being mindful that he is to be a steward of what Christ has aware of what God has done upon his faithfulness. And it is a day that he is awaiting with joy. You see, he preached the gospel. He took the gospel to Gentile regions preaching and planting churches upon conversions. And the Thessalonians was part of the fruit. 
Paul is confident in a Thessalonians' faith that it is sincere. So much so last time he would celebrate and give thanks to God for the sincerity of their faith as they embraced the gospel and enduring persecution on account of it. You see, the Thessalonians, as well as other congregations, are the work that Paul gets to show of his apostolic ministry. And so his hope is in the Lord, and his hope is in this eager expectation to present the Thessalonians to God, to Christ on that final day. They're his joy in that they've been converted under his preaching. They continue to grow all the more in the faith as he leads and disciples and encourages them. His joy is tied to their well-being because he's like their spiritual father in the Lord. And he would say that they are his crown of boasting. Now, the word crown here is referring to some sort of wreath that athletes receive. It is the prize that they receive as their award. Well, Paul here is applying it to the church. That as he has been faithful to Christ, as Christ has borne ministry, I mean, borne fruit in his ministry, he's presenting them to him. He is boasting, no, 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 no. Instead, it's Christ, you are amazing. You have given me this call. I've been faithful, and this is the fruit of it. And with great joy, I present them to you. Paul. He is boasting in what Christ has accomplished through his ministry as he was faithful. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And so let's bring this to our level. What we do and how we live matters. What we do and how we live matters. Yes, beloved, we have been justified by faith in Christ. We've been declared righteous. We've been delivered from the condemnation that we deserve for our sin because of what Jesus Christ has done. We will not be condemned on that final day, but we can be commended as we are faithful to what Christ has called us to do. You see, Christ did not leave us here to do whatever we want, to work fully, solely and fully for this life, waste away. No, he has saved us and left us here that we may be faithful in proclaiming him to the world, imploring people to be reconciled to him. He has purchased us by his blood. He has sealed us with his spirit. He has given us his, given us his word and his commands on what we should do. We are his servants that he has called us to be, and we are to live not for ourselves, but for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Paul lived for the one who died for him and was raised. We are to live for the Lord Jesus who died for us and was raised. 
You see, God has called us and he expects us to be faithful in response to what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this day can be faithful to what Christ has called us to do. You see, faithfulness is a fruit of saving faith. Beloved, are you faithful to the Lord knowing that you will have to give an account? Are you committed to the gathering? Committed to seeking, stewarding your present calling of singleness for the glory of God? My brothers and sisters who are married, are you faithfully stewarding your calling as a spouse? Are you seeking to make Christ's name known in your home and abroad? My brothers and sisters who are parents, are you faithful to the calling that God has given you to be parents? Teaching your kids about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imploring them to trust in him and be saved and modeling before them what it looks like to follow Christ. My brothers and sisters who are grandparents, are you faithful in sharing the gospel and encouraging your children? Are you faithful in talking to your grandkids about Jesus, imploring them to trust in him, that they may be saved by God's grace? Beloved, we're to be faithful to Christ in every area of our lives. Where we work and where we live, we are to live not for ourselves, but for him. Brothers and sisters, may we be calling. He thought about that day, and it impacted how he lived all of his days since he followed Jesus. Have you guys ever heard the term, don't be so heavily minded that you're no earthly good? Beloved, I don't understand why anybody would say that. Because that is so far from the truth. It is those who are heavily minded who do the most earthly good. We see it in the life of Paul. He's living in light of the account that he would give. And he's preaching the gospel to everywhere, to anyone who would hear. Beloved, it is those who are heavily minded who does the most earthly good because we're mindful that God has called us and God has commanded us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're mindful of the reality that God has called and commanded us to take the gospel everywhere in seeking to make disciples. We're mindful of the reality that all people have to stand before the Lord. And so we are pointing people to Jesus, imploring them to believe in him in this life that they may be happy in the next. But those who are the most heavily minded, they do the most earthly good caring for our neighbors, serving our neighbors, and pointing people to Jesus. Beloved, may we labor faithfully. Paul was faithful, and as we labor faithfully, may we do so with the hope and prayer that God would we do. It is what God does. Paul even made known in chapter 1 that he knew that God chose this congregation because they repented and believed. He's celebrating the fact that they received and embraced the gospel. That is not a work of Paul. That is a work of God. The fruit is a work of God. And the Lord does it by his grace in his timing if it is, if it is his will as we are faithful to him. And as he produces fruit, may we rejoice and if we don't see fruit, beloved, may we remain faithful. 
because we will have to stand before him. And he will evaluate our work and commend our faithfulness. Think about the scripture reading this morning. The two faithful servants. What did the master say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. As they were faithful to what God, as they were faithful to what the master had given them. And so, beloved, as we are faithful, the Lord may and will bear fruit in his timing and in his ways. And not seeing any fruit may discourage us, and may we be faithful. Some of us need to think through the reality, or if we're, if we're not seeing fruit, is it because we're not being faithful? Is it because we're not being faithful in praying for people to repent and believe? Is it because we're not being faithful to encourage fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord? Beloved, if that is us, may we repent of our faithlessness and be faithful. Others of us, by God's grace, you have been faithful and you have seen fruit because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You've seen people turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Beloved, I would say praise God and continue to be faithful. And others of us, we have been faithful and we ain't seen any fruit. To which I would say, man, may we resist the temptation to begin to dumb down the gospel, to go about gimmicks, to begin to try to manipulate in order that we may see some version of fruit and feel better about ourselves. Beloved, I would say resist that temptation and remain faithful knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It takes time for fruit to be produced. Missionary Adoniram Judson took the gospel to Burma. In the first seven years of his ministry, he saw zero continue to remain faithful. The fruit came later. Now, God doesn't necessarily guarantee us the fact that, that we're going to have just this fruitful ministry or that we're going to have a number of uh, conversions. But he calls us to be committed to what he has called us to do. It is our faithfulness that the Lord will commend. Beloved, are you faithful? Are you living in light of the reality that you will have to give an account? Are you encouraging fellow members to live in light of the reality that all of us will have to stand before the Lord and give an account for what we have done in this life. We're so prone to only focus upon this life, which is why we need the gathering, which is why we need the saints. I know I am prone to focus on this life, to not think about that reality and only just think about what I want to do. But I need fellow brothers and sisters to remind me of what Christ demands and expects of his people in response to what he has done for us. Beloved, if you're convicted by this, because you have been unfaithful, you're living for yourself, first let me encourage you that no one is saved by works. All are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. Second, let me call you to repent of your unfaithfulness. Know that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let me exhort you to get with other members, making known where you're at and asking them to pray. And maybe you guys get together and study the word. See what God has called and commanded of his people and you begin to live those things out. 
Ask, Lord, let me do this by your grace and change my heart as I do it. Don't wait until your heart change. Get after it by God's grace and ask him to change your heart as you do it. Paul asks a question. He gives the affirmation. He says, indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul gives an emphatic affirmation that the Thessalonians, they were his pride and joy. Paul's joy was tied to the well-being of these churches that he's planted because he is their spiritual children in the Lord. They were his pride and joy as they have received the gospel. They are preaching the gospel. Remember in chapter 1, they became an example to believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul himself has experienced persecution. He's mindful that the congregation there is enduring persecution. They're living out some of the very things that he has taught them. And it causes him to rejoice. They are his pride and his joy. Think about the joy that parents receive knowing that their children are doing well and living out the very things that they were taught by their parents. That's what Paul is experiencing here. November 2021, the movie King Richard came out. If you know anything about the movie, Richard Williams, he was the father of both Venus and Serena, two girls. As he was developing them and them playing tennis, he trained them in their swings. He worked on their footwork. He was actively and intricately involved in all of their training. Got them in clubs, was there at the competition, cheering them on. Now, we know that because of his investment in them, they turned out to be some of the greatest tennis players ever played. Venus and Serena Williams, they are international names all over. So successful. But this success doesn't happen apart from Richard's investment. And so they were his pride and his joy as his investment is the byproduct, a huge role in their success. Similarly, the Apostle Paul saying that you are glory and our joy, our pride and our joy. God using Paul to share the gospel and disciple this congregation. Beloved, as we are faithful, the Lord can bear fruit to where people can be our pride and joy on that day. Where we can present as Christ, who have grown up under our discipleship and encouragement. May we be faithful. As we receive any crown, we will only throw it at Jesus' feet because he is the Savior, he is the Lord, and he alone is glorious. Any work that we do, it is by his grace. Just as Paul said, it was not I but the grace of God that is at work in us. Beloved, the possibility of fruit is predicated upon our faithfulness to the calling that God has graciously given us in Christ. May our ministry be marked by faithfulness as we obey him out of a love for him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your gracious calling that you've given us in Christ, that you have saved us through his death and resurrection, redeemed us, and have given us the call to be faithful to you.
that we would live our lives in reality of the, the fact that Christ our King will return. That we would not dread his coming but delight in it. That we would not for our glory but for the glory of your name. That Christ may be magnified. Lord, help us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.